This afternoon, we're going to deal with the second petition in the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come, as it's explained to us in Lord's Day 48. In connection with that, we're going to read Psalm 98 together. Now, Psalm 98 is a remarkable psalm for a number of different reasons. One of the interesting things to notice about it is, in terms of the structure of how the psalm is put together, how um, a number of different lines in here take a word or a concept and hand it off to the next line. So there's a certain energy that builds up in this psalm. It looks back in history, and then, and then it calls... Uh, the nations and all creation, and finally every living thing to praise as it waits for God to come in judgment. As it does that, as the psalm goes through these things, it takes these ideas and hands off one to the next verse, so you have these repeated words in it, which build up to this crescendo. So it's actually structurally a very interesting psalm, and we point that out now so that you notice it and uh, maybe pick up some of that energy while, while we read. A psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now we read Lord's Day 48 together. Lord's Day 48, page 561, reads as follows. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come, that is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil. Every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever played with magnets before? And if so, have you ever 
try to see how close you can get them together before they click. There comes a point of no return when you bring them close together and they just suddenly click together and you can't stop them, especially on bigger magnets. If you look online in the right places, you can find very large magnets that you can buy that actually come with warnings on them to be careful with your fingers because once they come within range of each other and they get drawn towards each other, there's not much you can do to keep them apart anymore. It is absolutely certain that they will touch. Now, you find that same kind of certainty reflected in Psalm 98. The psalm is really divided into three parts. The first three, the first three verses describe what God has done in the past. This work in the past is seen as a prelude to what God is going to do in the future. And most of the rest of the psalm is praise for what God has done and is going to do and are looking forward to his certain reign in the future. And there's a sense of inevitability there, a sense of unstoppable coming together, looking forward to the day when heaven and earth will be united as surely as those magnets stick together. There's nothing that will stop God's intent to bring his kingdom into the world. And that's also where we find the gospel. We can joyfully welcome God's kingdom because it has come to us through Christ. So this afternoon I preached that gospel to you, summarized as follows, that because Christ has come, we can eagerly pray for God's kingdom to come. And we'll see that his kingdom brings a renewal of ourself, and his kingdom brings the renewal of our world. So today we're dealing with a second petition this afternoon, your kingdom come, and the question is, what does that mean? What is God's kingdom? If you look at Scripture in its entirety, you come to realize that God's kingdom is not just a place. When people think of God's kingdom, they think of a place, they think of heaven, but um, when you look at how the word is used in Scripture, God's kingdom is His rule. It is a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual rule. In John 3, verse 5, our Lord Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this kingdom is one which we enter through conversion. In Luke 17, he said, The kingdom is not coming in a way that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is among you. It is God's rule over you. It is his Spirit within you. Now, although the kingdom is God's reign over his people, that reign has implications for the whole world. God is a creator of all things. So for his reign to be complete, it needs to extend over all created things. And now you could argue that God already is the ruler over all created things. We acknowledge, for example, in Lord's Day 10, uh, the section on the providence of God, that, that all Things are sustained by God. All things are ruled by God. But, but the problem is that the world is in rebellion against God. The world is under the reign of a false king, Satan. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2 verse 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. And in Lord's Day 48, he's also referred to 
destroy the works of the devil. And so the presence of Satan is one explanation for the reality of evil. As Christians in our current political climate, we tend to associate evil with particular political parties. And this seems to be especially prevalent in America. And uh, we only mention that now because um, we tend to be influenced indirectly by American politics through the things that we read online. If you follow politics in America, you get the, re the impression often that all Republicans must be Christians and all Democrats must be atheists. But rebellion against God does not follow such neat political lines. If it did, then the world would be easy to understand. Then you would have the good guys and the bad guys. And it would be very simple. But the real problem of sin is that it originates in the human heart. This, this darkness, this inherent rebellion against God exists in each one of us. It's the presence of the old nature. And, and even when we're converted, even when God regenerates us, that, that old nature still takes time to die off. So there's this sense of, of a, a pent-up, inherent tendency towards rebellion that exists in the hearts of each one of us. And against that, Psalm 98 erupts in a white, hot blaze of light. Psalm 98 is a song celebrating God's work of salvation. It says in verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. What marvelous things is He referring to here? It's not specified. You could argue, well, it must be Exodus 15, the, the, um, uh, when uh, Pharaoh's army was destroyed and God's people were able to continue their journey to the promised land. But other you know, scholars will look at this and they will say, well, this psalm actually refers to the exile. In a sense, the second Exodus, the people had been um, removed from the promised land and later on God let some of them come back again. And so scholars will say, well, the, the psalm refers to that. But in the end, um, it's not specified, and there's a long history in between where God does all sorts of other things for His people too, and in fact, God is still at work now. So this psalm strips away all this identifying information, that all that historical stuff falls away to the background, and it compresses the totality of God's redemption, past, present, and future into this one psalm, and it shows us, it depicts for us in the words of this psalm, God as Redeemer, God as Savior, and that's the point of the psalm, that God is the Savior, that His coming brings salvation. And now you need to think about this. This is something remarkable. This is a really unusual thing in the psalm in verse 9, that it says, says that the Lord is coming to judge the earth. And the psalm portrays this as if this is a wonderful thing. And that's remarkable because in many other places in the Bible, Judgment Day is depicted as an absolute catastrophe. For instance, in chapter 5 of his prophecy, the prophet Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or he went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The prophet Joel says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. 
The prophet Zephaniah says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. And in the New Testament, the apostle Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and all the works that are done in it will be laid bare. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I'll be all right. I'm a church member. Or maybe you think to yourself, I'll be all right because I'm a good person. But look at what Scripture says about that. In Isaiah 64, we read, You, that is God, meet Him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Scripture says there is no one righteous, no, not one. And the history of God's people showed conclusively that just being a part of God's people is not enough. You cannot... Like claim to God's promises while rejecting the God who made those promises. And yet that's exactly what God's people did in the past. That's a big part of what the whole Old Testament is about. It's about God coming to His people, God's people rejecting Him, and then having to deal with the consequences. And now when you think about that, just try to imagine then against that background, especially if Psalm 98 comes from the time of the exile and afterwards, It depicts the coming judgment of God, which according to the rest of Scripture is a terrible thing. It depicts us as a glorious thing. How can that be? How does that make any sense? And it is because God keeps His promises. His promises not just to judge and punish sin, but His promise of blessing. Remember that in Genesis 12 verse 3, He says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who Those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is that blessing? It is ultimately the presence of God in our lives, the presence of God as ruler. And the blessing came to God's people and comes to God's people through faith. And yes, most of God's people in the past rejected them. Yes, most of them perished. Yes, many were sent out of the promised land in the exile, and only a remnant came back, but God still wants to fulfill His promises, and that is what Psalm 98 is celebrating, that God is Savior in spite of all of our sins. There is, ultimately, the psalm can only make sense when you see it fulfilled in Christ. It cannot make sense out of this psalm from a purely Old Testament perspective. It it only makes sense when you look at it from the perspective of the new because all of these things become true in Christ, how, how God was able to keep His promise to judge sin, to maintain righteousness, while at the same time keeping the promise to bring salvation to His people. That only makes sense through Christ. In Him, God punishes sin, and in Him, God also brings salvation. This is reflected actually in the Isaac Watts hymn, Joy to the World, which is kind of fitting, isn't it? Because we're close to Christmas now. You all know the, the song, the hymn, Joy to the World, the Savior Reigns. And apparently Isaac Watts 
based that him on this psalm, Psalm 98, because he saw that connection. He saw that this makes sense. It's based on this psalm. You see, this is ultimately why we're here this afternoon, because there is forgiveness through faith in Christ. Scripture says that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And when you are God's child, his kingdom is open to you already now. That's already promised to you. It was promised to you in your baptism. Think about what we confess in the form for baptism. We and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our souls so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God, and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. That is what your baptism represents. It is God's promise to cleanse you of your sins and an urgent exhortation to turn to him. Salvation comes through faith in Christ, and Christ is the only reason why anyone can rejoice that God is coming as judge. Outside of Christ, this makes no sense. But with him we have salvation, and salvation is more than just that your sins are forgiven in the past. In Lord's Day 32, we confess that Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his image, by his Holy Spirit, to be his image so that with the whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. So it's not just about cleansing in the past from your sins. It is also about being renewed in the present. And now to come back to Lord's Day 48, when it says, so rule us by your word and spirit, it is implying we are not yet fully under that rule now. You see? We are in the process of being cleansed, but as we become aware of that, we begin to realize that there's still much in our lives that needs to change, and that's why we pray your kingdom come. It begins with yourself. So rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Without God's word and spirit, we can't recognize our need for renewal. We don't recognize our inherent rebellion. But as we submit to God's rule, we begin to see more and more how deeply that problem is rooted Now, so rule us by your word and spirit. Let's think about that in light of this morning. This morning we had some new office bearers ordained, and we pray your kingdom come. We say, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. But how does that word come to us? It comes to us often through the office bearers, right? It's preached from the pulpit, but it's also brought to you into your homes by the elders who come on a home visit. So the point is you can pray in an abstract kind of a sense, so rule us by your word and spirit, but um, how much traction does that have when the elders come with that word into our home when it is embodied in their visit, so to speak? If, if they point out areas in our lives where our submission to God's word is lacking, do we accept that? Are we still willing to be ruled by his word then, or do we find reasons to protest? Or maybe we don't think that there are any issues in our life that are problematic. Other people have issues, but we don't. We're pretty happy in our skin. But then you really have to ask yourself, well, 
are you looking forward? Are you longing for God's rule? Are you, are you able to sing Psalm 98 with joy? The salvation of God is only good news if you see yourself as part of the problem. We cannot willingly submit to God if we are not reconciled to Him first. Psalm 98 celebrates the coming of God as our judge. If you're not reconciled with God, you have no reason whatsoever to celebrate His coming. If you are not ruled by God's Word and Spirit, you are not part of His kingdom. But if you have put your faith in Him, if you have shown that faith through your life, then you are reconciled to Him. This coming Sunday, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. At the end of the celebration of reconciliation, we read these words from Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son... Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then the form stops there with, this quota- with the quotation. But the letter to the Romans goes on, verse 11 goes on to say, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. We rejoice in God. Again, not something you can do if you're not right with God. And that's the point of the second petition as well. Because Christ has come, we can eagerly pray for God's kingdom to come. Psalm 98 is a prayer for God's kingdom to come, for His rule to expand over all things, for our lives to be submitted to Him, and it's an eager prayer. We've seen how His kingdom brings renewal of ourselves. Let's now see how His kingdom brings the renewal of our world. Now, as we've seen, the kingdom of God is not the church. But it does involve the church. So we need to talk about what church actually is. And a lot of people say, well, that's easy. Church is a time capsule. It's a place where certain wholesome traditions are stored and practiced and kept out of sight so that in the future people can look back on it and marvel at what life was like back then. But that is not what the church is at all. Scripture calls church the body of Christ. It says that God gave His Son as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Church is not a time capsule. Church is the body of a living and risen Savior. Church is also not primarily about being socially respectable. There was a time... When being a church member was socially respected, and um, sociologically you could probably say up until the 1950s maybe, end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, it was still considered to be an important thing to be a church member. Sometime after that, that started to dwindle. Well, we don't want to go back to that time, do we? We don't want to go back to the time when being a church member meant being socially respectable because that's not what God's kingdom is about either. That's not what it means for God's kingdom to come, for for the church to be recognized as being socially respectable. No, instead the church is the embassy of heaven. What is an embassy? An embassy is the office of another country overseas. So for example, uh, before moving to Australia, my wife and I went to the city of Vancouver in Canada, and there's an embassy there, an Australian embassy. And the people who work there represent Australia. 
They display the Australian flag in the embassy. It's almost like having a little piece of Australia in that other country, in Canada. The embassy is not the country, but it represents it officially. And in the same way, the, the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom is bigger, but the church represents it. The kingdom, the church is part of the kingdom of God. Lord's Day 48 is a prayer not just for the coming of God's future kingdom, but also for the expression of that kingdom through the church. That's why it says, preserve and increase your church. So do you pray for your church, brothers and sisters? Do you love your church? Do you love the body of Christ here? Do you respect the office bearers of the church? What about when the office bearers are criticized? You know, sometimes people sit around and these sorts of things, the conversation takes a certain turn and people make negative comments and that sort of thing. How do you respond then? Sometimes people will say things like, well, we like listening to the minister, but we don't really like our elders or we don't really love this church or it's such a cold place or all sorts of other things that people say. But think about it. If this place really is the embassy of heaven, how can you love heaven itself if you don't love the embassy that represents it? It's a little bit of your country abroad, so to speak. If you long for the country, you will feel familiar in the embassy. And any one of you who has lived abroad, and some of you have, and maybe at some point you stepped into a, an Australian embassy overseas and you had that sense of familiarity, you saw the Australian flag, you might even have heard some accents, and it was just like this tiny piece of home, wasn't it? And yes, embassies are not always great places to be. Maybe you're intimidated. Uh, maybe you wonder about the paperwork. Maybe you had to wait for a while. Maybe you had someone on duty who was grumpy. But it's your one connection with Australia in that far-off place. And in the same way, the church is our connection with God's kingdom. The church is a place of hope. It's meant to model the hope of the gospel in all aspects. So in the second petition, we pray, destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, every conspiracy against your holy word. Where does that happen? Well, the work of destroying the works of the devil, the work of fighting conspiracies happens in church, happens through the preaching, happens through the home visits, happens through the word, which clarifies everything for us on which we build our lives in a second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, For the weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, listen to this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what the church is about. That's what the gospel is about. And there's a lack of understanding among many today as to what the church and church gatherings are for. Some people see this as a uniting of spiritually like-minded people with a common goal. It's interesting that, that this idea of church as spiritually like-minded people that are united in a common goal comes from a very individualistic sense of your walk with God as something very personal, which does not involve others. And that's often reflected in, in music, uh, specifically certain hymns. 
probably the best example of that is the old hymn called I Come to the Garden Alone by C. Austin Miles. And probably a large number of you have never heard of this. But it uh, has appeared in 253 hymnals to date. It's about 100 years old. It's still sung by, I think, I think you can find it in 40% of hymnals today. Uh, Glenn Campbell, if you know him, he was one of the um, uh, more gifted and more well-known musical artists of the last few decades. He did a nice cover of it a few decades ago. But what's interesting about that hymn is the refrain. It says, and he, that is Jesus, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. None other has ever known. So that hymn actually denies what we confess in Lord's Day 48 about the church. It does not acknowledge the church as the body of Christ. Instead, the faith is narrowed down to this relationship between you and Christ with no one else involved, and in fact, no one else ever could know what it's like because it says, none other has ever known. Well, where does a church fit into that? It doesn't. Church just becomes a collection of people that have all had these same experiences and that have them in common, but they're not really united. And see, the Bible teaches something different. The Bible teaches that salvation is not just individuals who happen to be united together, It is believers united in Christ, becoming His body, unified together. The body is all the members together. And where this is not understood, people become much more willing to withdraw. They don't really care what church they belong to as long as they belong to the Lord, as they see it. But what does the Lord call us to do? He calls us to pray, your kingdom come. That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Which church? This one. You can't see the body of Christ in its totality, believers of the past and present united together. But you can see the local church right here. This is the embassy of heaven. This is the front line of God's incursion into the world today here in Mandajang. This is where the word is preached. This is the beginning of God's restoration on earth. You see, the kingdom implies renewal for the world. Psalm 98 shows us that salvation was never meant for just one group of people. Salvation was not meant for just this group of people. God is at work in restoring the world. God is at work reconciling all things to himself through the church. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and listen to this, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And that is why the melody of Psalm 98 is finally taken up by everyone. God has unfinished business with this world. Not just as judge, but also as redeemer. We can sing Psalm 98. We can pray for God's kingdom to come because God is faithful to his promises. First, faithful to creation. 
God saw everything that he made and it was very good. And he's never gone back on that. Even after the flood, God promised to be faithful to his creation. He said, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, the rainbow, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So that shows God's commitment to this world. This world is not meant to be used and then disposed of as we see fit. This world is being renewed. God is faithful to his creation. He remembers creation is groaning in its present state. He's committed to renewing it. And that is why at the end of Psalm 98, all of creation joins in praising God. Look at this. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. You think about these breakers on the beach. This roaring sound of breakers. It says, let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. You think of the sound of water running over rocks. That's the rivers clapping their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. That's a wind through the hills before the Lord. So all creation sing before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. The earth is meant to be restored and renewed by God. That's why all creation joins in praise. At the end of Psalm 98, creation's under this curse too that we all are under. It wants to be released. And God has committed himself to his creation. God is secondly also faithful to his people. So he's faithful to creation and faithful to his people. He keeps his word. And that's reflected in Psalm 98 as well. It says in verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel, the steadfast love, the covenantal love, the love that he shows in keeping the promises that he makes to his people. And the psalm implies, again, the, the, the covenant was never meant to be restricted only to one ethnic group. It was meant to include people from every tribe and language and nation. That's what's depicted for us in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It's the vision of the entire world welcoming the kingdom of God. And the only way that will ever happen is if these people are reconciled to him. The only way that anyone can eagerly pray for God's kingdom to come is if he or she is united to Christ in faith. For all others, the kingdom of God in its coming is an overwhelming and certain defeat. And it is coming. Now, certainly as magnets attract each other, so certainly will heaven and earth become one. His kingdom brings the renewal of ourself. It brings the renewal of our world. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes. Not so that the fullness of your kingdom comes, but until it is inevitable. It is certain it is happening. And one day, one day all creation will sing together with all of God's people. And this psalm is a rehearsal for his coming. Can you sing it? Are you looking forward to it? Are you praying for it eagerly? Then go and live accordingly. Amen.